Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode 76 of Enterprise Linux Security. I'm here as always with Zhao, who hails from the world of TuxCare. How are you doing? I'm fine, Jay. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And today we have a news-packed uh, episode. Yeah, um, we had. To, I had to ask, like, which one do you want to start with before we hit the record <laughs> button? Because it's just like uh, so many different things. But of course, we're going to talk about the Exum news. But uh, that's not even the biggest one we're talking about. But it is the most headline-worthy. <laughs> yeah, but maybe not. WebP, the LibWebP one, which we're going to start with, might even be a little bit more. Yeah, worse in that regard too. So there have been quite a few vulnerabilities making the news sites uh, in the past week or so. And the Webby one seems to be the the elephant in the room, so we better start with that one. We'll get to the to the XM one. We'll even mention a couple of others that are just as important but haven't had the, the spotlight shine on them. So, yeah, let's start with the Webby one. Basically, if you're watching any image on the internet right now, you might be at risk of being exploited remotely without even knowing about it, just by looking at an image. Um, that sounds really bad, so let's narrow it down a bit further. It has to be a WebP image, and it has to be specifically crafted so that it triggers a specific code pass in libwebp, which is the library that handles decoding WebP images. But it has been found to be exploitable and to be able to insert malicious code. I should phrase that differently. It can allow attackers to change the execution paths of the program that you're using in a way that favors them. So there is quite some history behind this one. Um, early in September, so about less than a month ago, actually, it was disclosed on September 7th, the, the initial thing, and this security group, um, Citizens Lab, I believe, was looking at the phone from a civilian employee of a civilian group in Washington, D.C., and they found out that it had the, the Pegasus spyware deployed. And upon further analysis, they identified the no-day flaw, a zero-day flaw that allowed Pegasus to be deployed on that phone. They contacted Apple security group, which looked at the problem, which identified the problem at the time as present in Chrome, and they communicated to Google, which then proceeded to analyze the problem, prepare a fix, and that's why you've been seeing so many updates for Chrome in the past few weeks. Not just Chrome, we'll go over all the other applications, but Chrome was the initial, was sought to be the initial vector for this. Um, the initial uh, vulnerability got the CVE assigned. We'll have all the numbers of the CVEs. I just don't want to keep pushing out numbers for CVEs out here. If you look for WebP vulnerability, you'll find that it's referenced everywhere. The initial entry, the initial CVE got assigned, got a 9.8 score, so pretty bad. When Google tracked down the actual problem as being a part of Lib of LibWebP, not specifically Chrome or Chromium, the, the rendering engine, they got assigned a different vulnerability, which got a perfect 10 out of 10 score, so end of the world scenario right there. Um, eventually, Google asked for, for it to be marked as a duplicate of the first one, so they got merged together. To give you some context, the, the CVE entry for this, even though it has only been published seven days ago, so the story evolved a bit from the early September 7th incident, 
even though it was announced on the 27th of last month, it has already had 27 revisions to the CVE entry. If you've ever looked at CVE entries before, you don't see that even in years old vulnerabilities. So this has been having a lot of attention from everyone. Um, wow. So what exactly is WebP and how does this come to happen? How is it possible to have something like this come out? So. Uh, WebP is a good image format because it lets you get really small images without losing content. You can get lossless images much smaller than you would usually have otherwise, or compressed images at less size than even JPEG at comparable quantization values. Now, if you know something about compression, you know that one of the things that you need to take care of when you're compressing anything, whether it's images or text or whatever, is that you need to take special care with the way that the information is actually encoded on the file. So one, of, one thing that's very common to happen is that you look at the frequency of characters or objects or whatever you're encoding on the given data that you want to, to compress and then encode it in such a way that the stuff that happens more frequently takes up less bits than the stuff that happens only once or twice. So let's say, imagine that you're compressing text you can choose to assign three bits to represent a very common letter like A or E, and then you can use like six or seven bits to encode a Z or a Q. So those will will happen very less often in the, the actual data that you're compressing. So they can be assigned more bits as that won't affect the output as much. When you're trying to decode, to, sorry, to uncompress the, the content, you have to do the opposite. So you have to look at the information that you have and you have to have some guidance. In this case, a table that tells you, okay, this particular sequence corresponds to this uh, character. That sequence corresponds to a different character. The, the encoding that they use for WebP uses something called Huffman encoding. You'll see this on several other compression mechanisms because it's quite common. On the compression world and the library responsible for doing the the uncompress is libwebp as i've mentioned this is available on basically any operating system it's very common and it's that type of thing that you don't want to reinvent each time that you're writing code so you use something that's already out there that has already been tested and is widely used basically any application that shows you webp files or lets you process WebP files is in, at some point calling into that library and as a consequence is vulnerable to this. The actual flaw happens when, the, when you're trying to show the content and in the way that you read that table, that frequency table back into memory. It's possible to craft the file in such a way that when it's trying to recreate that table, it will allocate a specific amount of memory, but will then try to write more memory, that more content than fits into that allocation. Mm. And then you get the buffer overflow. And it's possible to control what gets written outside of that buffer. So you know what you will be overwriting in memory and you can control what gets written in those, on those places of memory. And that's why it's so bad. And Yeah, remote code execution. Oh, boy. <laughs> and this happens even without your interaction. Say you have Signal or Telegram or any other um, chat application, and somebody sends you an image with this type of content. As soon as that image gets rendered, 
you're already compromised. So it has already happened. You don't need to click anything. You don't need to follow links. Nobody has to trick you into clicking something or into agreeing to anything. It just happens as soon as you receive it. And that's why it's really nasty. So presumably that could also happen if there's uh, malvertising, I would think, too. If there's yeah. an image being rendered by Chrome and it's in an ad yep. or somewhere on the page, it would be the same problem. Or if somebody sends you an email, even if you don't click the email and this is present inside the signature image or something like that, then as soon as the image gets rendered, this has already happened. Wow. So this is what big. this falls into a category of exploits. Sorry for cutting you off. That is called no, no, zero-click exploits, meaning that the user doesn't have to interact with anything in order to trigger this behavior. To give you some context, last week there was this advertisement going around where somebody was asking if you have any new zero-day exploits that target iOS devices, we'll give you $20 million, no questions asked. You'll get access to a remote iOS device. If you can demonstrate the, the exploit, we'll give you the money, you show us how it's done, and we'll part ways. That's the easiest $20 million you can do if you happen to know something like this. That's, that's how important these type of vulnerabilities are. So much so that the NSO group, the, the, comp the Israeli company responsible for the Pegasus spyware, is using it to deploy their spyware on phones of unsuspecting victims. And this is one of the ways that they can do this. This is how they can target phones of journalists, of government officials and all of that, without even having to trick them into doing anything and without requiring physical access to their devices. This is really, really nasty. Yeah, and I was also thinking too, like, you know, obviously patch, that's what we always say, but then I think about all the Android phones specifically that aren't being updated anymore, and there's going to be a ginormous number of those still being used today, um, because, you know, not anybody, not everybody can deal with planned obsolescence, so they don't always get a phone every year, so they have a phone from the past, and I know, depending on who made the handset, some companies do an amazing job of keeping them updated and others don't. But if you're one of those unlucky ones that have an Android phone that uh, they're not prioritizing updates on, then, um, you know, hopefully that still gets a... I know Google also gives out security patches separate from the Android OS now, but uh, make sure that it's being patched. But I'm worried about those that aren't going to get a patch because then they're going to be vulnerable. Apparently, the fix has already been added to the, the Android code base, but I don't know if vendors have already released uh, fixes for all of the models out there. Of course, not all of the models will ever get patches, like you mentioned. Um, right. But right now, basically any Android phone is vulnerable to this. Uh, Apple has already released some fixes. Uh, but the thing is, this goes much further than just uh, the mobile devices. All the web browsers are affected by this. Uh, Firefox, Chrome, Brave... Uh, the Tor browser, which is based on Firefox, I believe, all their derivatives out there, basically anything that touches on WebPs, anything that can show WebPs, and not just internet-able uh, applications, anything. If you have a malicious file on disk and you open it on an editor that depends on LibWebP, it can trigger an, an expected behavior through this. Right. Um, this is one of the most massive vulnerabilities out there in, I don't know, since Log4j, basically. Yep. Yeah, this is just one of those, it, it kind of reminds me, um, you know, in a different time period where you were hearing about 
um, especially crafted PDF documents and Word documents. And then before that, you know, macros were huge. And I'm not saying any of those things aren't problems now, because obviously, you know, it's not like that attack vector went away. But this kind of makes me think of back then when we were um, having to be really careful about opening opening PDF documents for a number of years straight, because that's that was super popular. Now it's uh, images. And this one has already seen exploits in the wild, so like that phone that was found, but not just that phone, there are other exploits in the wild. There is proof of concept code available on the internet. There are very in-depth and very technical analysis to this and why it happens. And there are even some comments on the fix that Google put out. Um, the fix itself apparently does not fix the actual underlying issue. It just makes sure to avoid the values that they know won't fit on that area. If you're a developer, when you don't address the actual issue, the, the actual problem, and you just put some makeup over the symptoms, you might be facing the same problem further along the line. So what might happen right. is that they might be addressing some situations that they have found cause this behavior, but because it's so tricky to, to replicate and to go down the line and try to identify every single situation, there might be others that have been missed. In fact, precisely because the original situation that caused this is so difficult to trigger by accident, one of the things that is used on this particular code is called the fuzzer. A fuzzer is a mm -hmm. tool that you use on development that tries random stuff, that throws random inputs and random settings at your application and tries to get it to fail. So that you identify the situations that cause problems in your application while you're doing development and not in production. This particular code has had fuzzed, has been fuzzed before and it didn't trigger this. This was not found. And hmm. even with the fix, there have been some people claiming that there are other situations where this can happen. Again, you might see some more updates coming from this, but if you see updates for any application that you use that you suspect that might see images, your email client, Thunderbird were something that was affected that has already seen updates. Um, there are lots of applications that haven't had updates yet, but others already did and might see also other updates coming in the the next few days. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So basically threat actors are really good at, you know, working around workarounds. So they put a workaround in a patch and they work around the workaround and you have to patch that until yeah, they run out of things and they try something else. But to your point, yeah, definitely update. It's it's the incentives, you know. Yep. If you're receiving 20 million for finding something like this, you're very highly incentivized to look really hard for problems. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. If you're part of uh, a bug bounty pro program on some company that promises to give you like $10,000 for finding problems, and then they take like six months to validate your submission, and then they will dispute that submission, and they eventually end up agreeing to only paying you 100 bucks, then you might not be very incentivized to reporting this to the, the software company. You might just go to the other side of the fence and get much more money for it. And that has been a problem mm -hmm. for years now in cybersecurity, and it continues to be. That ad that I mentioned before, the $20 million one, one of the comments from the original poster on that is that it will definitely be used in the current conflict by one of the players in the current conflict in Ukraine. 
So one of the sites is behind that request and they already have victims for that particular exploit. That's why they are being so particular about targeting iOS devices. They know who they want to hit with it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it goes way beyond just traditional cybersecurity. Basically anything the NSO group has released in the past has already been targeting governments and all of that. So this is pretty high level. Um, the fact that basically any application is vulnerable to it is just an unexpected side effect that's pretty good for them. Understood, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the bottom line here, your takeaway from this one is that you should definitely look at your update list. You should definitely run through the updates that you have available and deploy every single one of them. Mm-hmm. So now that we have the, the WebP vulnerability out of the way, let me just do a quick detour on one that I hadn't uh, pinged you before about. Uh, it's on bin utils. Um, if you're running a Linux system and you're unsure if you have bin utils deployed or not, you do. Okay, so don't think too much about it. It's on your system, you need to update it. Um, mm-hmm. You need to update it because two vulnerabilities have been disclosed just three or four days ago. One is another 9.8, the other is an 8.8. They deal with the way that, um, they have a term for this that eludes me here, but uh, these tools are basically debuggers and compilers and tools to assist in creating and compiling programs. Um, but when compiling a program, you can pass it some flags that change the behavior of the compiler itself. And in the way that the, those flags are being handled, there is a problem. It's, it usually takes a value in the form of like an environment variable. This variable equals mm-hmm. a value and then two dots and then another variable equals another value. And it has been found that if you put variable equals another variable equals a value, so no two dots in between, you can cause all kinds of havoc with the the code down the line, so it will introduce issues. And again, it's found on basically any Linux distribution, it's found on other devices, IoT, all the the works, and you really need to address that one because it gives um, code execution and the privilege, privilege elevation, which you don't want users to get. Yeah, definitely. Now let's move to the one that got us this nice uh, topic for today. You got malware. This one is you got email and it's probably malicious. Um, so email, uh, talking about email. Where do we begin with email? Yeah, <laughs> email is already such a can of worms that it's tricky to go through it. And it wasn't like this before, but it has only been worse. It has only been getting worse. Um, on the email sending world, you only have three big players. You have Postfix, you have Exim, you have Sendmail. Sendmail is the, the older one of all of these guys, and it's pretty outdated by this point. So if you have an email software that's sending email to other systems, you're probably running either Postfix or Exim, very likely Exim. Um, and I hear somebody in the back, oh, but I'm using Exchange, I'm using Exchange. Oh, poor you, Microsoft admin. I've been there, I know your pain. Getting mm-hmm. back to Exim, um, six vulnerabilities were um, disclosed last week. They range from 9.8 all the way down to 3. Point something, but there are four that allow for remote code execution. There are quite some specific conditions that you need to meet for each one. Let me just get my notes to make sure that I'm not missing any of them. If you have them at hand, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I'm looking now. Um, so, yep, I, I see it. So with 
the first one, external authentication scheme configured and available. That's one requirement. Another is um, SPA module for NTLM authentication configured and available. Third, um, an XM proxy, you know, just according to this is different from a SOX or HTTP proxy um, in use with an untrusted proxy server. Um, another one is an SPF condition used in an ACL. Um, SPA module configured to authenticate the XM server. And I'm reading from mm -hmm. the article that's linked in the description. And then the final one is an untrusted DNS resolver. So um, my understanding is if any one of those are true, you're vulnerable. Yeah. So this was announced to to the big scare of everybody because XM is included in some uh, web hosters control panel. It's the default thing that gets bundled in with them. I won't name them because I don't want to shine a bad light on them, but it's just a good email server that has some issues. It happens. Um, looking at the external one, um, one thing that you'll go through in your sysadmin career or when you're looking at ID in general and you're starting and trying to understand protocols and all of that is telnetting directly to the ports of some services. Telnetting to port right. 25 lets you basically talk to the to the email server and insert email commands and get responses back all in plain text. One okay. of the things that you can pass the email server is the authentication method that you want to use. One such authentication method that requires the server to be allowed to use it is called external. It means that you'll be sending a certificate to the server. The server will validate that certificate and then trust you to be you, okay? Or fail that validation and won't trust you. So that's what the external authentication is. If you're configured to use to accept external authentication, means that you won't just use username and password, you'll trust certificates. It has been found to be possible to craft uh, that certificate in a special way that gets you to, again, another buffer overflow and lets you compromise some memory inside of Exim and leads to all kinds of nasty things. Um, it's not very easy to exploit because unlike the previous vulnerability that we saw on WebP, the actual data that you can overwrite here is much more limited. There's a specific amount of data that's usable and writable and you can compromise that hasn't been yet been shown to be easily exploited. Um, still, if it happens to be exploitable, it will be with uh, high privileges and you can do it remotely, so not even touching the system. Nobody is the wisest and you manage to compromise the email server. Lovely. Yeah, all kinds of good. <laughs> the next one, the SPA module, it's used for NTLM authentication. Um, on layman terms, for that Microsoft is admin in the back that sells Mac for running Exchange. This means that you're authenticating against, um, uh, say, an Active Directory, for example. Your XM is running authentic uh, authentication checks against Active Directory and using the result. Um, you only need to have the, the NTLM configured for this to be exploitable. Not all situations, not all organizations will have it. Not all organizations are running hybrid environments with Windows, but some will. So if you happen to be, then you either upgrade Exim or the recommendation from the vendor, and this is pretty funny because it's an email server, is to cut, restrict access to the internet, to the Exim server. Again, I don't quite understand how the emails are supposed to reach the server at that point, but that's the guidance that they're offering at this point. Yeah, you could turn the server off. You just unplug it, and that'll yeah. also work. Yeah. 
Um, so again, that's a recommendation. That's the official thing that you should do if you're not able to update XM right now. I just love that. It's like mitigation. Stop using the software. <laughs> you know, I did like yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't mention this before on the web piece story, but Google's recommendation if you can't patch Chrome at the point is to stop using Chrome until you that time as you can update it. It's that bad. And so wow. I don't see it as different on this case. It's just all kinds of nasty again. Um, I'm not especially familiar with Exim Proxy. I imagine this is a situation where you use a, a third server in the middle between you and your um, intended target. I, again, I have no particular knowledge about this module. The SPF condition in the ACL, it just means that it's possible to trick what your email server is trusting as being a reliable server on the other end of the communication or not. Um, the SPA module, again, used for NTLM authentication, falls into the same category as the one uh, as having um, Active Directory in place. It's actually two different vulnerabilities that exploit this, so be especially careful if you have Active Directory and you're using Exim to authenticate against it. Um, the untrusted DNS resolver, that's always a problem. If the, the information that you get from the DNS server is untrusted, if you're trusting on third parties to give you good name resolution, they can just trick you, basically. I know everybody blindly trusts Google's name servers and open DNS blind, uh, name servers, and those are actually pretty decent. Um, but you're blindly trusting those servers. If they happen to mess up or if they happen to have the wrong information, f in them, that's what they'll give you and that's where you'll send your emails. So, again, that's not specially new, it just means that DNS resolution is DNS resolution and will continue to be. Yeah, DNS will be DNS. It'll always be the causer of issues. <laughs> if not directly, then the, just indirectly. A, indirectly. Yeah. Um, and if it's not DNS, it's printers. There's always just one or the other in IT. You know, we hate them both. It's always one or the other. Um, the thing with these XM vulnerabilities is that the way that this is exploited is actually pretty old school. Uh, talking directly to the, the SMTP server is something that you used to do in the late 90s, early 2000s, just to see if you could send email directly. Again, friend exercise. You tell net to a port 25 SMTP server, you say hello with just one L, um, it comes back with hello, and then you send, uh, you type, uh, let me see if I can quote this from memory, to, and then an email server, an email address, and then enter, and then type your message, end with the dot on a single line, enter again, and the email gets sent as if you had used directly a, a client. Um, that's a fun mm -hmm. exercise if you're looking into, into understanding how these things work. But this is something yep. that was done like 20 years ago and is part of the way that you can trick email servers still to this day, which is fun. Yeah, some things never change. Um, and I, I think there's going to be some people out there that might be thinking, big deal. I don't even have an email server, so why do I care? If you don't have an email server, you especially need to check. I know that seems like the opposite of the advice normally, but and you know where I'm going with this. If you're if you're sure you're not running an email server and, and that's fine, just make sure you don't have this installed and running because just because that's not the function of your server doesn't mean it's lurking and, and 
accepting things in the background. So just make sure that you don't have a mail agent or any other piece of software that's running and listening um, that you have no intention of using at all. Just get rid of it. I don't mean to stop the service and I don't mean disable it, remove it. Because even if you disable it with system CTL, then you can still have a situation where you have like a side channel that re-enables it and then they just go in and use it against you anyway. So if you have zero intention of using it and it has zero purpose on your server as with anything else, just lower the threat surface by removing what you're not using. And if you do use this, then um, you're gonna have to look at these vulnerabilities and see what the mitigations are, which I assume is patching, right? That's the idea or has it been patched yet? Yeah, the, that's the thing. You have patches available for all of this. So you really need to take a look at the, the patches that you have available for your system and do mm -hmm. not delay them. I know we always say this, but this time it's particularly bad. The, these ones are remotely exploitable. That's one level higher bad. So you don't even need local access. You don't need an account. You don't need to break in some other way. Just by being reachable on the internet, you can be affected by this. And what you were mentioning before about reducing the attack surface reminds me of one of my old pet peeves when I started deploying systems on actual servers. And I know where you're going with this. <laughs> And one of the things that always annoyed me was when the default installation would install stuff like Bluetooth on servers, which you never need Bluetooth on servers, and the services were always running. And it was not just one service, but like four or five different services, because Bluetooth needs to be listening for file transfers and for authentication and for target talking to other Bluetooth devices. And you would get this immense list of services that are just popping out from a default installation that you then have to go through and remove every single one. This is before. And before you say, oh, but why don't you use automation and deploy just what you need? This is way before automation was a thing. This is when you actually deployed systems to bare metal, actual metal, the stuff that you needed two people to raise to the rack and put in place. And it was one of my pet annoyances, always having to go through every single default installation and killing all of that stuff. Really, really annoying. And Today, it's also funny that st some server distributions still leave things in, like, say, X server and stuff that you'll never need on a server, and it still gets deployed, it still gets bundled in, and sometimes it's even activated when you don't need it. So, yeah. I've had that happen a lot of times when there's a, you know, a, a hostable software that you install headless. You know, if you're new to this, that means no monitor. But then it'll install the libraries for the X windowing manager and all these other things just because you might need it or it might need lib, you know, image magic or these other things to you know generate pictures and whatnot. And a lot of things come along for the ride. I would say what I what is a is a challenge for everyone listening. Um, depending on how old your distro is, it's netstat or the SS command is a newer way to do it. Just run that and look for the ports that are listening. Just look, just have a quick look at this. And if, if it's a web server, then obviously you're expecting your web server service to be listening, obviously, that's what it's for. But if you're not hosting email on there, then if there's something listening for email connections, that's uh, that's a potential red flag or anything else that's running. If there's um, an NFS server running and you have no intention of mounting or sharing NFS with it, I mean, then why is yeah. it there? Get rid of it. And you go through these things, I feel like it's, um, to your point, I don't think it's something anyone should have to do. I think this, the, the default should be more sensible. And that's been a pet peeve of mine as well, that you know, you get all these things that you might need and, and 
I here I thought I was just one of the few people that just wants the distribution and the app package manager and nothing else, like absolutely nothing else. Like it should just, in my mind, be enough to boot and apt install something and then anything else, no, I, I don't want anything else, but even the net install of Debian will have a few things in there that you'll need to remove and that's often considered one of the lighter ones. Uh, you're an arch user in disguise. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> almost, but not quite. Um, someone was mentioning on the chat, yes, another vector for XM being present is Docker images. Lots of Docker images out there right now haven't been updated yet and still include XM, um, older XM. So mm -hmm. that's something that you also need to update. So look for updated images if you're using Docker uh, because stuff like the, um, the control panel hosting, um, that stuff includes email by default and the email that they usually mm -hmm. bring in is XM. Again, XM is yep. being a victim of its own success, basically. The the numbers that came out when this vulnerability was announced was that this was present on like 600,000 systems out there. That's a lot. That's a lot of systems being vulnerable. And if there's anything that we've been taught in the past couple of years is that everybody goes out and updates as soon as the vulnerability comes out, right? Yeah. I wish. <laughs> and I'm just remembering early in my Linux career, like I think it was... Over 20 years ago, I remember, I can't even remember which distro it was. And then I remember looking for the very first time. And I think this is probably true of any Linux admin when they look at this for the first time and they look at the open ports on their server and their server has one purpose, but they find like 10 different things on there. It, my, my reaction was, what is this doing here? Why does the, why is that on? Why is that listening? And I think probably any Linux admin will have that experience, depending on the distro, of course, when they look at that for the first time and see what all's listening. And then, um, you know, obviously, if you need Exum, then patch it. If you don't, then remove it. Yeah, like you, like you just said, it's one of those surprises that we will get you when you're starting out as a sysadmin. It's like just updating the packages is not enough to make you secure. You actually have to restart the services to pick up the changes. That's something that also got me when I was starting and to this day, I know it surprises some people. Um, just because you used your YAM or your apt or Pacman or whatever to get updates, and you're very feeling very smug that you just patched against, say, OpenSSL or something like that, until you restart every single application that was using it, those applications are still vulnerable, are still using the older version. Um, so yeah, the same thing goes for Exim. If your update manager does not restart services automatically, and most don't, when you get the new exam, you have to restart the service to pick up the changes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's very important. Yep, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, we tried not to do a, a very scary episode. The, the WebP vulnerability is actually pretty nasty. The, the Exim one, because it has all of those requirements for you to actually be exploitable, for your systems to be exploitable, it might not be that much of a problem if you don't fall into those categories. Um, but definitely look at it. As Jay mentioned it, you might have Exim running even if you don't necessarily have it uh, deployed explicitly. It might be part of something else or it might just be a default. Um, take a look at your systems. This is dangerous stuff. This is more dangerous, especially the, the WebP one, because it affects everything. It doesn't really matter if it's Linux, it affects any operating system, any device. If you have updates to do, you really should go out and look at them and get those updates as soon as possible. This is really tricky. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was it for our episode today. 
Um, thank you very much to everybody who joined. Um, there are some very interesting aspects to these vulnerabilities. Uh, Jay will add the links to the video, I'm sure, for you to get more information about it, including the, the actual CVE numbers. And we'll see you on the next one. It was a pleasure. See you around. Bye. Thanks.